0: A story. Well, it,
1: if you get a child something to read, they get. Rot. And this is
2: Astrid Rot. From D. Rotte Punta, the Red Duck.
3: And you are listening to the art report.
2: Yeah.
0: CITR
2: 101.9
3: in Vancouver.
4: Woo! <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Arts Report for October 3rd, 2012. Tonight on the show, we review the UFO question as well as speak to Matt Clark, director and adapter of the story, as well as Jen Cole of Give Me Brilliance, who arranged its movement. We will talk about IRL at the Western Front. I'll give you a few tidbits from my tour with Sarah Todd. And we have some more Vif. Stay tuned. Yes, yes. Welcome to the Arts Report. Um, great show today, in my own opinion. And uh, we are covering some theater. We're covering some, a little bit of music and movement as well. We have a couple of films from the Vancouver International Film Festival, Minner and Worst Day Ever. As well, I'll give you a few tidbits from the tour I took with Sarah Todd, who curated IRL at the Western Front. It's been on for a few weeks now, and it'll be on for a few more weeks. And I uh, took a tour with her, and I did actually record something, but the audio didn't uh, turn out so great. And I try to give you guys the best that I can. And so uh, we will just, uh, I'll give you my notes from that uh, very lovely uh, trip through the internet. But first, the UFO question. So, the UFO question is a story by Kurt Vonnegut, and it is part of the um, collection Welcome to the Monkey House, one of my favorites, um, which I would say of any Kurt Vonnegut, so I guess I'm a little biased. But the UFO question was adapted by. Uh, Matt Clark into a 40 minute play, which is uh, at the Carousel Theater through Sunday. And I got to go to the opening yesterday, last night, and uh, he did an excellent job of adapting this story about a machine that gives you happiness. Little radio waves come out and give you a sense of glee. pretty much like the Arts Report itself. But in this situation, um, where they wanted to explore a little bit about what happiness means with a flip of the switch. Now, it was actually written in 1951. And I talked to Matt Clark, who, as well as adapting the story, directed, including the set and the sound uh, production. He also had the part of the scientist who discovers these radio waves from space, Fred. And I talked to him a little bit about uh, adapting something that was written in 1951 about buying happiness uh, and about the dance scene that happened in collaboration with the band Sonny Pompey. And you're listening to them right now. As well as movement coach Jen Cole, who we'll actually talk to later in the show. But first he told me why he became a director, and I like that he's, uh, he's pretty honest about it.
0: Five or six years ago, I came back to Vancouver from school in New York, where I trained as an actor, and came back here, did um, did a few shows acting, and then really, really became interested in Oh, I guess it was the control. I really <laughs> wanted to. I really wanted to to tell my own stories as a whole, or or to take something somebody had written and interpret them, or or share them uh, through my own kind of viewpoint. Which uh, I think this this thing with Vonnegut is, is exactly what I've been looking for. And uh, why I started did it, directing.
4: why did it speak to you? The UFO question
0: the story itself um you know i had read i'd read a bunch of vonnegut and always looking for just uh, ideas and things i can put on stage and this particular story um just structurally worked so well for theater um the way it was uh structured like it, it almost seemed like it fit into a three act structure perfectly and also, I liked how it had, even though it's a very short story, you've got like six or seven people on stage at one time. I like I like having big casts, mm-hmm. and so that was really fun for me too.
4: And what what kind of choices did you make in the uh, adaptation of the the story?
0: Well, the biggest question I guess I had when I started is um, it's it was written in fifty one, so you got to decide, do you make it contemporary or do you keep it in the same era as it was written? And I kind of liked um, blurring that and playing with that. I mean, you saw we've got people on Macs and they're talking on their cell phones, but there are also characters who seem like, you know, they could be a professor from 1951 or this could be, you know, the model wife homemaker from the 50s. Uh, So I'd say that the first real big choice I made was that I was going to modernize it, but try to to keep something sort of ambiguous time-wise about it.
4: And it's also a very modern subject, or at least a subject that is almost so essential that it stays modern. It still is very relevant to questions we ask ourselves today
0: yeah yeah which is totally one of the things that that drew me to the story is I read it, and I thought, Oh my god, this is I've asked myself this question or these questions all the time, and I have friends who should ask themselves these questions about <laughs> happiness and the nature of happiness, and yeah, just, just the subject matter was so very 21st century
4: You have music, especially in a musical interlude uh, by Sonny Pompey. And then you that music interlude was coached by Jen Cole. How did you hook up with Sonny Pompey and what was why did their music um, work so well for the piece? Do you think
0: Spencer from Sonny Pompey. I've known him for a little while and been to a bunch of their shows and heard their albums. He shares them with me and it, it's funny. Um, he's the drummer in um, the band Said the Whale oh yeah and and those guys are friends of mine and I kind of bonded with him through there and we actually really started bonding when we found out that we were both really big fans of Vonnegut and we would have all these little inside jokes from Vonnegut books and um, just, you know, that would be a point of discussion for us and so when I started doing the show it was so it was not only perfect because of our relationship, him and I, but I just started listening to the album that he had put out, um, Breakfast of Champignons, which, of course, is a pun on Kurt Vonnegut's Breakfast of Champions. Uh, and it was so that, that psychedelic kind of uh, highs and lows and just... The music flowed really, really well with um, how I was imagining some sort of movement piece. And then I thought, well, let's kind of see where else we can take this and how much more of Sonny Pompey's stuff we can do. So he gave me a few new songs that I think are coming out at the end of the month. And they they worked really, really well to hold the rest of the piece together outside of the dance.
4: And then you brought in we- Jen, who worked with that music as well. Can you tell me a little bit about developing that kind of dance music movement section of the play and and what that means to you
0: yeah that's another thing um as i was writing it and picturing it on stage i just kept feeling more and more like it would be incomplete if we didn't express this feeling physically um and i have no background in dance i have no background in musical theater um, but I but I really felt like it was so necessary to to explore this with our bodies through movement. So Mark, uh, my co-producer, he found um, Jen, and I am so happy with what she brought to this. Like it is it is totally beyond what I had imagined and and what I had thought uh, a dance could bring to this piece. She she came into rehearsals after we had been we had been going for a couple weeks she came in and she was just like kind of on the outside of this group that that had been going for a while and she just totally took it and and i don't know she made us more complete she definitely made the cast and all of the production side of things more complete with her personality and also with what what she was doing with us in rehearsals and how she was getting us to explore this effect of happiness with our bodies and you know, even if we didn't have a dance in the show just her coming in and and getting us in our bodies like she did was so valuable for the rest of the
3: show. And
4: that was Mark Matt Clark uh, talking about his process to develop Kurt Vonnegut into Kurt Vonnegut's uh, You Feel Question into a play. And uh, it's, it was a, a really enjoyable experience, I have to say. Um, so it's about 40 minutes long, and uh, it starts with uh, the main character, more or less, um, who the narrator, I guess you could call it, uh, Andrew, uh, played by Andrew and he, uh, Andrew Dunbar and he uh, tells us that the Ufeo machine has been perfected and he is testifying at a committee to see whether it should be allowed to go into production and we flash back and we learn about how it was um, first discovered and we get to see its first trial and effects and It addresses the issues of commercialization of happiness. And if you can buy happiness, and if you literally could, not just, can you buy happiness? No. You can buy happiness. Now what? And the performances were uh, really funny and excellent. And for me, one of the main parts that I really enjoyed was... One, what he was talking about the large cast, it was a really short play. It moved really fast, and there was tons of cast members. People kept entering this room full of happiness, and it never got too cluttered. It was really well choreographed. What else was really well choreographed, um, with help from Jen Cole and the actors themselves, was a uh, beautiful kind of dance number, as Matt was describing, really showcased the feeling of euphoria and inner beauty and freedom that um, these people felt when they were under the control, so to speak, of the UFO machine. And uh, so I thought that I would talk to Jen a little bit about what it was like to, to uh, direct, to a certain degree, the movements uh, when they were consuming Happiness by the Kilowatt. And here is Jen Cole. She is the artistic director of Give Me Brilliance, which is a unique company uh, starting out out of Vancouver.
3: He was choreographed for sure, but Matt was looking for um, movement in a more choreographic sense for one scene and he approached me to see if I could work with th- this music that he would really really wanted to highlight and uh, setting the mood with the, with the actors and uh, it turned into like this great little dance and I, uh, that's it <laughs> So did you work
4: with Sonny Pompey or did you hear the music and then um, come up with some emotional directions for the actors?
3: So Matt sent me the script first and then he, uh, well, first he sent me the actual short story, and then he sent me the script where he had envisioned a dance occurring. And then he sent me music from Sunny Pompey, and he sent me a, a several different um, versions of the song. One was with instruments, and one uh, obviously was lyrics. And uh, so I listened to it, and we talked about what he wanted to see, and sort of the mood. And uh, then when we got into the studio with the actors, and then things started to just organically come together. Although we both had visions of what we wanted to see prior, it really happened when we were working with the actors.
4: Now tell me a little bit about Give Me Brilliance. You're the artistic director of this company. Mm -hmm. And tell me a little bit about um, what Give Me Brilliance is and your role kind of in the movement community.
3: Give Me Brilliance is an emerging contemporary dance company. It started out... Uh, really just trying to find work for myself and being inspired by the ever-loving mixtape that has accompanied through my life in several different incarnations. And then uh, because I have this idea that dance should be just as memorable as some of those songs we listen to over and over again, I came together with uh, some women that also shared the same view, and we're in the midst, it's been over a year, of creating work piece by piece that will eventually be a full-length show set like a mixtape, using popular to recognizable music, talking about everyday mundane things, relationships, loss, um, basically being stuck in your own routine, things that people we hope people will be able to relate to just as they do with music on the radio.
4: You work with other uh, theater groups and dance groups as well, or was the partnership with Matt something unique?
3: It was unique. I haven't worked with um, a theater company before. Uh, I have done uh, several works with other independent dancers or been a dancer for other companies myself. I've also taught several students um, in technique, but also doing choreography for schools. Uh, but working with Matt is some, has really just opened up such a wonderful world of where movement can be appreciated. You know, of course, uh, dance is used on stage, but even, even in sort of like this short period, there's room for it. And I think that I really, really love this opportunity to do it.
4: Can you give me some insight or examples of some of the uh, emotional states? Um, that you wanted to capture with the movement piece that you helped develop and kind of how you decided to capture uh, those themes?
3: Sure. I guess the overlying theme for that section is happiness or, well, beyond happiness. Um, Feeling completely in a state of bliss, euphoria, Uh, given to these people by the sound that their machine is captured. And when we started thinking about the emotional state of where they would be, this like drunken, kind of relaxed, uh, really sensual, sort of touching each other, looking at each other, wanting to be with each other, kept coming up. And then, um, but those, and that feeling is great, but we wanted to highlight that with sort of being in the moment and stopping stopping the minutes. So we incorporated this sort of sharp counting so that this movement with their bodies that they could sort of do collectively but individually to come to a point of communal release.
4: And it looked like some of the moves were quite dance oriented. Were some of the performers, did they have dance backgrounds that you could utilize? or?
3: Well, I don't know um, but specifically, but it's true um i guess i worked with them with a very broad idea visually and each person really took it upon themselves to become what they they felt their character would do in that moment
0: Mm -hmm.
3: and some of those people obviously are very comfortable moving and those dance movements they're their own i think i just gave them room to do so is there anything else that you'd like to add about, about working on this, this play with Matt and the gang? Yeah, I'd like to say that uh, thank, I'd like to thank Matt um, for believing in dance as an enhancement. And also, it's so crazy. I met um, the artist in Sunny Pompeii last night, and I felt like I'd been working with him, but I'd never met him. I was using his music, um, and which is what I do when I create my own work contemporary music but it's usually much you know more commercial based uh, but this I met the real artist who I was using his music and it was a pretty magical moment and just a just a big thank you to all the artists out there that can lend their work to inspire other artists until so it keeps growing it was really good
4: that was Sarah Cole and uh, she directed and helped with the movement not just in a beautifully choreographed piece but throughout the play and theater is a, is a physical art it's not just about the words and I think Matt actually struck a really nice balance uh, shout out to my friend Martin who I saw walk on as a cop role and uh, a very happy cop halfway through and uh, it was nice to see local uh, actors getting lots of chances, you know, by using walk-on roles and using big casts. You really get to utilize all the talent in Vancouver. Um, you can find uh, more information about uh, Little Mountain Lion Productions uh, at littlemountainlion at gmail.com, on Twitter at LML. Broad. And that is um, Matt Clark and Mark, who uh, was also part of the whole wonderful production. Uh, Mark Ferns, as Lou, uh, who wanted to sell happiness to the world. He was a radio jockey, of all things. Come on, Mark. Um, but anyway, he, uh, he uh, and Matt have that production company. And Matt is actually a full-time student. At UBC, he's a literature student, and he does his writing in between semesters, so hopefully we can get to see more work in the new year, perhaps even some more Vonnegut. And Jen, you can find at GiveMeBrilliance.com. On Twitter, it's GiveMeB. And uh, this Sunday is actually auditioning for 12 Minutes Max, which I did last year in Seattle for the end of October. And apparently Vancouver used to have a program like 12 Minute Max as well. They work out of uh, 45 West, studio which is on 45 West Hastings and about every three months or so they show off what they've been working on. The next one should be in mid-November and they're working up to a, a full-scale show of her mixtape idea as she discussed uh, next year. So we've been listening to Field by Sunny Pompeii, um from the Breakfast of Champions or, I'm sorry, Breakfast of Champignons, uh, which of course overlaps in terms of feel. It overlaps in terms of the Kurt Vonnegut reference. And feel is spelled F E E L E D. And that really represented the feeling from UFO, um, as well as, of course, the UFO field. So the UFO question is playing uh, through Sunday. Uh, tickets are 15 bucks at the door at the Carousel Theater on Granville Island. And for more information, you can find uh, at Little Mountain lion at gmail.com and uh, according to Matt so on Thursday through Saturday there's double shows 8pm and 10pm and because it's a show about happiness he suggests uh, you know have a few uh, drinks beforehand and show up light and happy to uh, consider happiness. So we've been listening to Field I would like to play another uh, song that the download of which actually came uh, scannable on the little program and this is called Snowy uh, s- sorry this is called Snowy by Sonny Pompeii. And uh, we will uh, listen to this. We will take a brief break. And when we come back, we will talk VIF. Stay tuned.
5: Right here on News 101.
4: What motivated you to become a candidate in the provincial election?
2: The media portrayal of last week's protest that resulted in polarizing images of black-clad activists taking to the streets.
1: He was just explaining to us the reason why they wanted to show this film on campus.
0: The official stance is that we are for the
6: Olympics.
3: News 101 reporter Brad Pepping was there. By discriminating against homeless people in Vancouver, there's a disproportionate impact on Aboriginal people as well as people with disabilities. I was pretty outraged. I mean, it is outrageous.
6: In-depth coverage from an alternative perspective. News 101 is Vancouver's only live, volunteer-produced student and community newscast, bringing you local, national, and international news from an alternative perspective. Tune in Mondays and Fridays at 5 p.m. right here on CITR 101.9 FM Vancouver. Live streaming and podcasts are available online at citr.ca.
2: No marketing, just good tunes. Refreshing, no?
4: And we are back on the Arthur board. Oh, looks like that uh, that snowy uh, MB3 did not work. So hopefully we'll be able to make that work for later in the show. But uh, that should be coming up off their upcoming album, I believe, and it's tiny dot cc slash snowy snowypompeii. P-O-M-P-E-I-I. I felt like that was like a very Roman Empire literary 50-cent track that I just talked about. Wordplay, you guys. So I don't know if you guys have noticed what VIF is on. Uh, Vancouver International Film Fest runs... Um, Run uh, till next week until the thirteenth uh, and I will be going this very weekend to check out tons of shows um, but at the media event uh, a week uh, a few weeks ago I ta- I got to talk to a couple of local shorts producers now there's tons of big films and tons of great local films but I have a special place in my heart for shorts all right and one of the reasons is because you can go to a a shorts uh, event. You know, they have several of them during the festival and you can see a bunch of different ideas and a bunch of different styles from a bunch of amazing local filmmakers. And you know what? You might not like all of them but you will like some of them. And uh, it's a great way to kind of run a gamut, especially if you can't choose. Choose the most you can get. It's, it's quantity and quality. So one of the uh, shows, uh, one of the uh, directors that I got to talk to were the very friendly and funny uh, Steve Deneau and Jay Fox. And their film is called Binner. It's part of the Breaking Point program. And Binner is running uh, October 10th and October 12th. Uh, It's about 12 minutes. It's part of the Canadian Images program as well. And uh, it's a... Story about something that's pretty uniquely Vancouver, even though it started actually, the film started out in Halifax. And so, uh, we talked briefly outside about the film, about Binning, and about how they got into film. So here is Steve Deneau and Jay Fox, a very, uh, a very wonderful. Uh, pair of partners who are uh, going to be hopefully as well at the Vancouver uh, Steve Steve Deneau is going to be at the Vancouver Short Film Festival as well with his earlier film, Grey Matter. So what I thought I would do is I would play you uh, the interview with those two lovely guys and I'll give you a sense of the tone of it with this official trailer for Binner. No No, it's just music, but it gives you a bit of a taste of the tone.
6: Surprising, but we don't necessarily think it's surprisingly funny. <laughs> there's some comedic moments, but it's definitely a dark, dark little uh, tale for sure.
4: The dark? You mean there's a darker side to oh. binning?
6: In our film, definitely, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: Um, so, can you give me maybe a, a few seconds of introduction from each of you, so that people can know your voice?
6: I'm Steve Deneau. I'm the co-writer director of of Binner, a 12-minute short film that's screening at the Vancouver Film Festival this year.
4: And what's your background in film, Stephen? Oh,
6: okay. Uh, I'm mostly a cinematographer, camera operator over the last five or six years. And uh, I've directed a short a few years ago called The Grey Matter. And this is my second one with my one of my best buddies, Jay Fox. And uh, yeah, it's our second film
5: together, yeah. Jay
4: Fox, best buddy of Stephen Deneau. Tell me a little bit about yourself.
5: Uh, well, I'm Jay Fox. <laughs> I guess you know that already. <laughs> uh, I come to uh, film from sort of a, a different arena. Uh, I think we're you know we're all uh, students of film and uh, students of cinema and I sort of reacquainted myself with cinema while I was doing a master's degree in oceanography and I brought a Super 8 along to film all our all our work and then that little documentary short got screened and then I started making uh, you know odd little underground existential little short films and uh, music videos and things and i Known Steve for a disturbed long six and a half years, and uh, we've been working together in various capacities, and uh, we we work really well together. And wanted to make something that was really going to make uh, a, a splash.
4: What kind of so? What kind of uh, partnership do you guys have? How why do you work well together?
5: We're certainly uh, filling out a what I would call almost a perfect balance. Taking from the scientific side that I know, that really helps me in uh, organizational and procedural (laughs) efforts. And uh, Steve and I both have uh, a a different uh, cinematic style, so the balance of the two together really makes it uh, fresh, I would say. In short, Binner wouldn't have been made if we didn't do it as a partnership, and it it is, and we are better for it.
4: But yeah, so tell me a little bit about... Binner, which as I already said, I was interested in learning about because it seems like such a Vancouver concept.
6: Mm-hmm. Um, well, Binner is, do you want to hear about the nucleus of how, how the film started? I would love that. Yeah. Um, well, Jay, you want to do the Halifax angle first? Well,
5: there, yeah. there is a bit of a Halifax angle, which is I went to school and studied oceanography at Dalhousie in Halifax, and they have a, a Binner community as well. And uh, I thought it would be interesting to be forthright and offer some bottles to a particular binner and then that sort of uh, crystallized a experience where he felt comfortable to come and ask again and again and then fast forward to suddenly your wallet's gone and uh, it's a really bizarre experience. So that's kind of where the thought of binners and binning uh, forged its place uh, in my soul and then coming to Vancouver, you have a different type of binning community because the weather allows you to do it all year round. And uh, I've seen people from all walks of life and economic demographics binning. And I've even seen people driving in their cars. They call it cherry picking. You're driving your car with a buddy, and he gets out and picks up bottles. Now, I don't know how profitable that can be when you're burning gasoline. Nonetheless, everybody does it.
6: The film, the film itself, is it's like, uh, it's like kind of a mystery it's a mystery. We we, we kind of uh, make a film that was a little bit more old, like felt a little bit more old-fashioned as far as like a noir, a little more modern-day noir. Our influences were like Hitchcock and Polanski, and, and this was just about a mysterious, a mysterious guy, a mysterious wanderer. He's uh, He's got maybe a little bit of ex-military in his past, and he just uh, goes about his day, and he has a relationship with a, a woman who's nice with
5: him in the neighborhood and always gives him... Uh, Bottles and whatnot, and yeah, it's you know. his one relationship that he still maintains with society, and it is at a distance. But I didn't want—I did want us to uh, examine, you know, a type of relationship where you're dealing with someone who's on the periphery of society, and you want to contribute, but where is the line drawn, and uh, what happens next? He, well, what was it he, in the
6: description? That's pretty pretty clever. They don't give anything away, but he, hes waiting for the. I guess the benefits of a, a party that the woman has said for all the bottles and whatnot, and something goes awry and he gets tangled up in something pretty violent and dangerous.
4: I mean, I guess I said, oh, it seems very Vancouver, but it's an urban relationship that's probably a little different in every city.
5: Sure, but, uh, you know, every city doesn't have that ability to exchange those bottles and cans for cash. So they are, they are a currency, and it's, it's everywhere. It's uh, everywhere here. So people need to take advantage of it. And people that are in need definitely need to take advantage of it.
4: So, learn Never about Benning, learn about yourself. <laughs> is that, that was almost the tagline for
5: the movie, but
4: uh, yeah. A little too on the nose. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, is there anything else you guys would like to add? You have um, other projects people can check out?
6: Well, Grey Matter is actually screening again oh, great. Uh, at another fest, the Vancouver Short Film Festival. Okay. Uh, it's actually the opening film of that festival they've, they've chosen. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and then this was our first collaboration together, but we've got four or five other projects that we're really excited about talking and, and, with people and a about. Really, a
5: really cool reality oh. co- competition show idea that we got cooked up to. Yeah.
4: <laughs> the glee in your eyes. Yeah,
5: very yeah. exciting. It's going to be good.
4: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. Is there anything else you guys want to add?
5: Yes. Uh, Rothgar Matthews plays Binner, and he is incredible. Yes. And I just want everybody to know that Roth Rothgar Matthews for Prime Minister.
6: There you go. And and the screening's Wednesday, October tenth at six
5: thirty PM. That's our premier screening at VIF. And Friday, October twelfth at one PM. I'll be there. <laughs> you so you want a matinee, you come see me. Come say hi. <laughs>
4: Yes, and that was Steve Deneau and Jay Fox who, uh, as you heard, will be screening their um, Binner, 12-minute short, a dirty little film from uh, 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday, October 10th and uh, October 12th at 1 p.m. You can check out more information at facebook.com slash binnermovie and, of course, on vif.org. And that would be... um, you can just Google it, vivorg slash binner. And then uh, you can also email them at ridewithbinner at gmail.com if you have more questions. Um, I thought uh, what we would do is try out the trailer for the Grey Matter that will be playing at the Vancouver Short Film Festival. You can check that out at vsff.org uh, as well. Um, and it looks pretty creepy. It's the startling Victorian-era drama drama of Harland Clark, a once-famous pianist whose memory is plagued by tragic loss.
3: Shall I tell you of Mr. Clark? As his mind is not what it once was, if he were to tell of his story, many things would change. The clerk and the memory machine, green glass and grave keepers, The steam lights in the ivory keys. The scream in the dark waters. And Audrey. Yes, all of this would certainly change.
4: Very spooky. And that uh, is accompanied by uh, the image of a glowing jellyfish. And a man and his hands. So, uh, please check out uh, all the VIF films at vif.org. Another film that will be playing um, at part of one of the shorts programs, Break Even, and is itself, again, a Canadian image, uh, is The Worst Day Ever by Sophie Jarvis. And this short film is the story of a precocious young man who's a sweet and obedient child. But he has a pretty bad day, even though he's trying to make it right. So I talked to uh, Sophie Jarvis uh, outside the uh, Van City Theater about the young man playing the character of Bernard, as well as being a young uh, filmmaker, and about loving uh, the Vancouver International Film Festival. So introducing uh, Sophie Jarvis.
1: 2011, and we were shooting up until February. I mean, probably eight days of shooting through different kinds of weather for a movie that's set all in one day. Yeah, it's um, stars Jacob Davies. He's a local Vancouver actor. He's he must be nine or ten years old now, but he's just fabulous. He's yeah, a terrific actor. He plays Pinocchio on Once Upon a Time, and he's got a film coming out in South by Southwest called The Tall Man, where he plays Jessica Biel's son. So It's pretty lucky to have a little star like him on board.
4: So tell me a little bit about filming The Worst Day Ever. It sounds like you have... You said you had multiple types of weather in one day. Mm -hmm. And you also... I mean, it sounds like he's a great kid, but they always say children and animals, right? So as a new filmmaker, um, you know... What was it like dealing with those challenges? What do you think you've learned?
1: Um, Well, this is actually Children and Animals. I keep hearing that. And I have a dog in the movie as well, Boomer. So you hit both. both. I hit both, yeah. And Boomer was great. But actually, this is my second film I've done with kids and animals. My last film, Margaret and the Dollhouse, had a little girl. She was eight and an alpaca as well. That was in my parents' house, which they were very happy about. And um, maybe I've just had good luck, but the kids I work with are amazing. And the animals... Especially their trainers that I work with are great and accommodating, and and so far I feel like I've planned ahead for working with them. So we've given ourselves lots of time on the shoot dates, etc. So yeah.
4: What is it about animals and kids? Then I'll ask you that you know what draws you to them, and what what is it about them that helps you uh,
1: represent your vision of the world? Um, I really like working with kids because I guess. Um, I don't know, I just find them really fascinating, and I like to work with kids who want to act. Jacob Davies is just obsessed with acting, and he's obsessed with acting in football and being a kid, but he loves doing it, he's interested, and he's always inspired, and it was really interesting to see what he would bring to the table as a child without, I mean, I directed him, but he he kind of got my humor, and it's amazing, someone who's so much younger than me, but we just really got along, and... Um, I guess for me, working with kids is just interesting because with adults, they've taken all the courses, they've gone to all the acting classes, and there's some amazing adult actors out there. I have worked with them, and they're great, but with kids, it's just so fresh to me, and I'm a new filmmaker, I don't know what I'm doing, and they're new actors, and they seem to know a lot more about what they're doing than I do.
4: (laughs) So you guys are learning together. Yeah.
1: Um, you said that when
4: uh, you were growing up, you came to VIF and, you know, film festivals. So is film,
1: uh, you know, like an imaginative experience for
4: you? Maybe that's the connection?
1: Yeah, I think it is. Maybe I started I started being interested in filmmaking when I was pretty young, when I was about 11. And I mean, my early films were like claymations with my dad's old camera with a shark and liters of blood so I don't know when I stopped being so violent in my claymation activities and turned more towards comedies but I think that imagination has always been a part of it and yeah I think I guess a lot of my films are somewhat fantastical so I guess that is maybe I have a childish mind <laughs> yeah. not in a bad way yeah no I hope not <laughs> <laughs> um
4: so one of the things that they were mentioning during the introduction to the festival was that there is uh, a lot of films that focus on the idea of like a quarter life crisis or about like youth in, in crisis and, and starting their lives now you're looking at at kids obviously mm-hmm. at, a, at a kids worst day ever but do you connect it all to that idea of Kind of people getting younger and more professional and coming to that point earlier
1: in their life perhaps it's because I'm coming up to my quarter life crisis that yes I do connect with that Um, I recently graduated as I said and I know it's an accomplishment and I know that my film is doing well which is an accomplishment but I can't help but still fear for the future because without school I don't don't know what I'm doing I'm, I'm looking for work everyone's looking for work all my friends are in the same position and it's just amazing to be at this point a and to see ahead of me a point b that just seems unattainable right now because i am so young and i have so little experience and everything that happens just feels like a fluke but it's i guess it's part of the adventure <laughs> you got to give yourself credit i know i think that's funny i find that like people um who uh, look at
4: youth and like, call them entitled and i'm like we do not give ourselves enough credit <laughs> i feel like
1: we have a drive for sure and because we've been having this connotation i think that there are many motivated individuals who are our age and i think that that's really impressive at least of people i know they're they're all pretty driven <laughs> um
4: so you have the the worst day ever in vef and is there are there any other projects you're working on
1: or showings that i can tell people about well, Worshipers also is also premiering in TIFF, in Toronto International, next week, I guess. Gosh, yeah, it's screening next Tuesday and Wednesday, the 11th and 12th there, so that's happening. Mostly just sort of working on the end product of that film is my project right now, but besides that, um, just writing, I'm writing a feature with a friend right now. It's more for fun, but we'll see where that leads to. Right now I'm just sort of...
4: Enjoying the success of this movie. And that was Sophie Jarvis, the director of The Worst Day Ever. Um, and that is playing October 8th at 6.30 p.m. and October 9th at 1 p.m. at Pacific Cinematheque. Um, the October 8th screening is at Empire Granville 2nd. The October 9th screening is at Pacific Cinematheque. You can check that out on the org. And uh, it looks like a very beautiful uh, piece, if the screenshots are any indication. Love her use of color. All right, well, we are going to take a brief break. And when we get back, I will be talking uh, a little bit about the IRL or in real life at the Western Front. And then we will be wrapping up and you will get to hear a little bit from the returning Wade for Discord or Radio. So please do stay tuned.
2: Want to know what's up at UBC? Read the UBC. It's only the largest student newspaper in Western Canada, and it's written and edited entirely by UBC students. The UBC is your source for on-campus news, culture, and sports. New editions come out every Monday and Thursday. For breaking news as well as amazing videos and blogs, check out ubc.ca.
4: Now, at the Western Front right now, we have the Goethe Satellite. And the Goethe Satellite is a project out of uh, the Goethe Institute in Berlin. And this features uh, artists from Vancouver, Berlin, India, and other places around the world. And it's running from this June until next June. Now, what this does is provide an interdisciplinary, international Um, contemporary art place of learning and they have these satellites all over the world so hopefully if the one at Vancouver works well um, they will get a a permanent uh, place in Vancouver. One of their latest projects um, was curated by Sarah Todd at the Western Front and it is called In Real Life. Now, it's uh, been getting excellent reviews, and if that means anything to a contemporary project. And it will be running until October 13th at the Western Front Gallery in East Van. So uh, one, or sorry, one project, three artists that we've actually featured on the Arts report before are Sarah Ludi, Nicholas Sassoon, and Sylvain Saley. So their wallpapers project is playing there. And it's a really interesting place because I've seen this project three or four times, um, be it online. At different venues and now at the Western Front. And every time it's a little different because it interacts with its surroundings a little differently. Um, this covers not just you as you walk through the very small space, but also the other various artists. Now, I'm not going to talk too much more about them because we, uh, you are welcome to check out past shows. Uh, I believe we talked to Nicholas uh, for the New Forms Festival and that was, I believe, on, uh, let's see, September. Yeah, it was in September. So you can check that out at chr.ca where you can download all our podcasts of these amazing shows. Um, so uh, that was uh, one of the artists. And the uh, other couple of artists that I enjoyed. So there was um, Dragon Espenscheid and Oilia uh, Lealina. And they worked on a project where they brought a 1990s desktop computer. They put it on like a 1997 style office work. And they created modern communities online, modern websites, um, but to work for Windows 95 and like, like Netscape 94. And apparently, according to Sarah Todd, um, 1997 um, was kind of the start and the first breaking of internet art. And uh, they these contemporary websites, Pinterest, Google Plus, and Facebook um, look. Really, really interesting um, Programmed for uh, PCs from the 1990s um, And you uh, It's called uh, Once Upon And you can actually check It out at 1x-upon.com And one of the interesting things About this um, this Whole event at the Western Front and this, and this series is that it Occurs in real life But you can also experience it online As most net art does um but it really does have a sculptural aspect to it it is important to see it irl in order to really grasp uh, the the multiple facets that they've uh, imbued these sculptures with uh oliver larrick uh, presents a uh, latest version of versions ongoing from 2009 and it centers around the way that objects um, are replicated over and over again. I was specifically told not to use the word meme, so I'm not going to. But if you look at it, you might. One of the reasons they don't use the word meme is because of the kind of dismissive quality of that word. But of course, it's a, a meme, ultimately is a, a piece of culture that's being reproduced in its most basic sense, um, even goes back to genetics. So uh, one of the things that he does, uh, that Oliver does is look at, in each version of versions, various images, um, any, everything from sports to media to art that get reproduced within this kind of network across international lines. And it also has an interesting narration and basically seems a lot like, between the narration and the images, an excellently written paper, but one that works best in audio visual rather than in text. It has this very soothing, neutral, oceanic woman narrating the piece, um, which lends it this whole other layer of the idea of curation and academia and neutrality when it comes to versions of culture. Um, That can actually be viewed in its entirety online at oliverlaric.com. And then another piece that was really interesting um, was the piece that was actually just printed out. So, um, Alexandra Dominovic uh, has this stack of thousands and thousands and thousands of ordinary office paper, recycled paper, which you can actually access as a printable PDF. Once printed, the sides create an image. And there's various images displayed all over, and for Sarah to curate this piece, she simply printed it out. No special paper required. In fact, the mundanity of the actual paper is part of the project. And the one that we looked at at Western Front is part of a project that references the former Yugoslavia, uh, including the now defunct yu domain name. And uh, it's called Untitled 1930. And it's part of the project in which the artist researched um, television news themes that had a lot of impact in former Yugoslavia. Um, these news themes would happen all every day at 1930 or 730. And uh, it became a cultural milestone. And later, when there was revolution, uh, a cultural, you know, pain. It was a painful uh, memory and a conflicted cultural um, Piece of music, so she remixed those and put on uh, put on parties and these kind of raves uh, where people came together communally uh, to music that was remixed, and all of that is represented in this stack of paper with some, which uh, in this case represents abstract um, abstract photography from those events. So this exhibition goes on until, as I mentioned, October 13th at the Western Front. And one of the things that I love about art is its ability to question itself. And internet art is something that while those who are with it usually say that, of course it's art, uh, but what is art? Um, If something is reproducible... Or if it's very accessible or if it's inaccessible in terms of the academic background that you um, sometimes need to even understand what the heck is going on. Um, and then works and pieces and um, exhibitions like this, let the... Um, viewer or the the person consuming the art to get to interact with those themes and to interact with uh, the effect that the internet is having on how people produce cultural pieces. So um, please check out all this information at front.bc.ca slash events slash IRL. And I would really like to thank Sarah Todd for, you know, Uh, letting me talk to her about the event. I apologize that the audio was not up to snuff Um, but what I can do is post a written version of that online soon and I have actually a whole backlog of old um, interviews that I would love to post online so I'll be working on that but uh, if you have uh, any questions, comments or would like to join the arts team you know where to find us. We are online at the Arts Report, uh, Facebook slash Arts Report. We are also at arts at CITR.ca and we're on Twitter, CITR underscore Arts Report and that is it for today I want to thank all our guests including Matt Clark and Jen Cole of the U Feel Project uh, I would like to thank uh, Steve Deneau and Jay Fox and Sophie Jarvis for talking to me about their films at BIF as well as Sarah Todd for her background information on IRL the Western Front please remember to check out Cartoon College and Frankenstein this Friday at 6.30 and 9.30 uh, CIC